I'm delighted that you're here and I hope you've got your Bible with you. I encourage you to be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 14. We'll be spending our time in John 14 and surrounding chapters there in just a moment. This evening we'll be talking about Titus 2 verses 1 to 8 as we continue our study of the book of Titus, a series of five lessons. We're ready for the third of those and we're looking at Titus 2 verses 1 through 8 about leading others to have sound faith. Come back and be a part of that study if you can. In this section of Scripture, in John chapters 13 through 17, that's chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, a large section of the Gospel of John, Jesus has a discussion with and gives instructions to his disciples. This takes place in the upper room. This is the occasion of the Last Supper. In chapter 13 is where he washed his disciples' feet. In chapter 13 is where he gave instructions to his disciples that I give you a new commandment that you love one another. In chapter 14 and in verse 1 is where our focal point wants to be. We want it to be for today. Jesus said at verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. He repeats that phrase again in verse 27, let not your heart be troubled. Those words were needed for a discouraged and confused band of disciples. They were certainly, obviously, discouraged that he's going away. Look at chapter 16 and in verse 6. It is in this setting and even before this that he has been explaining to them that I'm about to leave. They had not expectations of that. They had the idea that he was going to somehow establish an earthly kingdom and, and stay here on earth. That was not what was going to happen. He's been explaining he was going away. So in chapter 16 in verse 16, because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They indeed are troubled. This small band of disciples are discouraged. King says that they had left all to follow him and now he informs them he's going away and they cannot follow him now. That must have been disappointing to them. They thought he was going to stay and, and he explains to them, I'm leaving and but you can't go with me right now. Barclay observes that in a very short time, life for the disciples was going to fall in. Their world was going to collapse in chaos around them. Little did they know that in just a few days, they would be preaching the very message he had been telling them to preach and preaching before thousands. And then the next thing you know, they're going to be arrested and they'll be on trial and be threatened and beaten, and they have no clue that that's about to happen. And he says he's going away. So at verse 1, he says, let not your heart be troubled. What does the word troubled mean? It means to cause inward turmoil, to stir up, to disturb, to unsettle, to throw into confusion. Apparently, their hearts were troubled. They are confused. They're stirred up, they're bothered, they are disturbed. That same word, by the way, was used with reference to Jesus, who was troubled. Let's back up to chapter 12 and in verse 27, who was troubled and thought about his own death. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Describes Jesus himself. He's troubled by the very events and what's about to take place. Chapter 13, verse 21, same word. 
chapter 13 and verse 21, that when Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He was troubled at the thought of one of his own disciples betraying him. Same word. You remember the occasion, Matthew chapter 14, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water and they didn't know it was Jesus at first and they thought it was a ghost and they were disturbed and they were afraid. It's the same word. They're troubled. And so Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. So what Jesus says in the context of John chapter 14 is designed to comfort them so that they would not be troubled. And he begins immediately in the very verse that we're talking about in 14 in verse 1 and then in verse 2 and then 3 and on down the line. Giving them words of comfort to help them so that their heart would not be troubled. What he seeks to do is he seeks to allay every fear. And to silence every murmur. And to calm every turmoil. And perhaps your own heart is troubled as was the disciples. Maybe your heart is troubled at times. It may be that you're confused and uncertain about the future. Or maybe it's that you're disturbed because a loved one has turned from the Lord. And so you're troubled in heart. Or maybe your heart is heavy because of some personal problem or some personal struggle that you have. And it might be said that you're troubled indeed in heart. So let's talk about let not your heart be troubled. I want to again notice chapter 14 and in verse 1. And then I want to bookends that in chapter 14 and verse 27 with the statement again, and we'll come to it a little bit later. But notice at verse 1, let not your heart be troubled, he said. And then again at verse 27, he ends by saying, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Well, what did Jesus say in this context to try to help them with their troubled heart, their disturbed heart? And let's begin by noticing what he said. First of all, what's going to help with this? The first thing that he mentions is the comfort of a complete faith. The comfort of a complete faith. How so? Well, let's look now at verse 1. At verse 1 he said, you believe in God, believe also in me. There is a connection between that statement, you believe in God, believe also in me, and let not your heart be troubled. What he's saying is that faith has the power to bring us safely through the troubled waters. You are now upon and embarking upon greater troubled waters, he is saying to his disciples. And the faith that you have in God and faith that you should have in me is going to bring you through those troubled waters by putting God first and furthermore by putting full trust in God. You're going to see how that works in a moment. In other words, they're going to rely upon him for support and for comfort. And the faith is, in this sense, the absolute, faith in the absolute goodness of God that will sustain them through the deep places of fear. As they go through these deep places of fear, this absolute faith in the goodness of God, that God is good and God is doing what is right and God will always do what is right. And we'll see more about that here in just a second. Those whose hearts are troubled will be sustained by that thought. Let me give you two examples of that. Here are some people who had a troubled heart, and when they grabbed a hold of their faith, that helped them through that. Let's take Job, for example. 
Turn back to the book of Job. You put a marker at John 14. We're coming back to John 14. Let's go over to the book of Job. I'm just trying to illustrate this principle of how faith brings you through the troubled waters. You believe in God, believe also in me. No one was more troubled than was Job. You have never been through troubles like Job has been through. Let's turn to John 19. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you of the story of Job that you know about. And that is, Job lost his children. He lost all of his possessions. That's bad enough. But then lost all of his children, which is devastating. His wife told him to curse God and die. And his friends come and blame him for all the problems. Job begins to lash out at God and said, God set him up for target practice and shooting arrows at him. But there's one thing he held on to. Look at John 19, uh, Job 19 and in verse 25. He said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on earth. I know that God is God and God will do what's right. That's what he's saying. I don't know what's going on in my life. I don't understand why I'm going through this turmoil. I don't understand why my friends are doing what they're doing. I don't understand why my wife did what she did. I don't understand why I lost my children. I don't understand. But I do know this, that God is God and God will do what is right. He had trust in the absolute goodness of God and that sustained him through those trials. Let's go to Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, see the first century Christians were urged to see God on his throne and in control when things were in utter chaos. This is written to Christians who are under the pressures of Domitian, I think. Some think Nero, okay, then thinking it's Nero. It doesn't matter to me at this point. But the Roman Empire is putting great pressure upon the Christians and seems to be crushing God's people and seems to be victorious. And the whole point of chapter 4 is to say that God is still on his throne and he's in control. He is the Almighty. He created a world, verse, verse 11, that he could control and do his will. And that encouraged them and they held on for dear life with that one principle that God is God and God's going to do what's right. And that's the point back in our text in John chapter 14. Now this faith must be complete. Because Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me, he said. You trust in God, trust also in me. These disciples were raised in Judaism and had a deep faith in the God of Israel. It is not a question of do they believe in Jehovah God? Did they believe the revelation of the Jehovah God? Did they believe the Old Testament scriptures? They did. But he's saying now put trust in me as Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And you're going to see how that's true here in just a second. Now, with faith, what Jesus is saying, there is no reason for a troubled heart. With faith, there's no reason for a troubled heart. Linsky makes this observation. The departure of Jesus, rightly understood, is no cause for distress, but the very contrary, though it be a departure, to get his point. In other words, that's what Linsky is saying that Jesus was talking about here. When he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. That with faith, a true and a complete faith. There is no reason for distress. How so? We see if they understood, they would see that his departure was completing his mission and making it possible for a way to heaven to be open unto all. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. John 14, 2. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
In other words, I'm going away and they are in distress. I'm going away and they are disturbed. I'm going away and they are troubled in their hearts. And Jesus is saying, if you fully understood what my going away would accomplish, there is no reason for distress. In fact, it's the very opposite. So if you have faith in me and you understand that I am the Messiah and you understand who I am, then you'll understand that I, by going away, make the way of heaven open for everybody. And there is no reason for your distress. So just trust is what he's saying. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Also trust me that what I'm doing must be done. That what I'm doing is right. And it is for your good and it is for mine. A complete faith helps a troubled heart is what I learned from that. Is your heart troubled? Are you disturbed by some things? Are, are you just uptight and all spun up about things that, that just, you just don't can't seem to handle too well? Maybe a complete faith of not only believing in Jehovah God, but believing in Christ and fully trusting that God is God and God will do what's right will help that troubled heart. But here's the second thing he mentions. The hope of a prepared place. The comfort of a complete faith. But also the hope of a prepared place. Helps with a troubled heart. This is found in verses 2 to 6. Let's talk first of all about the place. At verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many mansions. You're reading from... The New King James or some similar translation that might have a footnote at the word mansions. It may say that literally it means dwellings. Here's how that word is translated in other passages or other translations. The English standard uses the word rooms. The Father's house are many rooms. Many rooms, New Century so translates. The New American Standard Bible, 95, says many dwelling places. The New Living Translation says there is more than enough room in my father's house or my father's home. The point is twofold. The idea of dwelling is the idea of remaining. And so it's the idea of a permanent abode. That in my father's house are many mansions, many dwellings, many rooms. But it's the idea of dwelling there and it's in a permanence or a remaining. It's some place where there is an abiding, where you stay, where you dwell. Not a temporary place. And the second aspect of that is that there's room for one and for all. In my Father's house are many rooms. There are many dwellings. There's more than enough room in my Father's house. He said there is a place. Well, they were well aware that there was a place. But let's talk about the preparation, verses 2 and 3. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. There is preparation. You see, the disciples that are gathered around Jesus at this Last Supper certainly believed there were mansions. They believed in life beyond. From the Old Testament, people had believed that for many years. But he says, now believe in me. That I am leaving to prepare the mansions for you. That's part of this believing in me also. You already believe there are mansions. 
But believe in me also. Believe that I am leaving to prepare those mansions for you. Now that preparation would include a number of things. It includes his death. He's about to die. He hasn't died yet. But he's about to die. He will be raised from the dead. He will ascend into heaven. And then think of the work that he's doing now as our high priest. Ever living to make intercession for us. All of that is included in the preparation that he makes for the disciples to come to this prepared mansion. Now, here's a practical thing I learned from that to help a troubled heart to remember that he's now preparing a place for us. And when your heart is heavy and your heart is burdened and, and you say, I don't know if I can go any further and, and I am stir, stirred up and I am disturbed. I, I don't know how to handle all the problems I'm dealing with. You just remember that the Lord is preparing a place for you. He's, that's what he's doing now. And that was an encouragement to the disciples. It's the third thing right here in this context of this prepared place. There's the place, there's the preparation, and then there's the promise of verse 3. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if it ends there, then what comes next? What happens next? But that's not where he ends. He says this, I will come again and receive you unto myself. I'm coming back to receive my own for this prepared place. And what I'm learning about from that, when Jesus says that where I am, notice at verse 3, he said, uh, I will come again and receive you into myself, and where I am, there you may be also. Something very practical to learn from that. The disciples will not always be absent from their Lord. Yes, he's about to go away, and yes, he's going to be gone, but he's not going to be gone forever. I'm going to prepare a place for you, a place that you already know about, but understand and believe in me that I am going to prepare that place for you, and understand my role in that preparation, and also understand that when I leave, I'm coming back. And you're not always going to be separated from me. But that's not all. The plan, beginning at verse 4. There's the place, the mansions, the dwellings. There's the preparation that Jesus is making, the promise of his coming back. And we're going to say more about that promise in a moment. But then there's the plan beginning at verse 4. So let's read verses 4 to 6. Beginning at verse 4. He said, and where I go you know, and the way you know. Let me stop there to say that what Jesus, I think, is saying is that you ought to know where I'm going. And you ought to know the way by now. They should have concluded that. And Thomas raised a question. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Thomas wanted to know more about the destination. We don't even know where you're going. You talk about we know the way, we don't even know where you're going. We don't understand. Thomas wanted to focus more on the destination, but Jesus turned and focused on the root of the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true and the living way. In other words, I am the only way. Let's go back to verse 1. Now I'm beginning to understand more of what he means. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm now understanding more about that. That he's asking the disciples to have a full, complete faith. In what sense? I want you to understand what I'm doing. I want you to understand why I'm leaving and why I'm going away. And I want you to understand what I'm trying to accomplish. I want you to understand my mission. And I want you to understand that I am not a way, I am the way. You believe in God, believe also in me. Believe what? Believe I'm the way. The only way to come through to Christ, God is through Christ. 
He is the true and the living way. That's part of believing in me, verse 2, that I am the way. And what I learned from that, that the hope of a life beyond helps a troubled heart. When your heart's heavy and when your heart's troubled, as was the hearts of the apostles as they sat around the Last Supper, and they are greatly disturbed at the news that Jesus is leaving and they can't go with him. Not right now, anyway. He holds out before them that you need a complete faith. And secondly, you have the hope of a prepared place. And then there was a third thing that he mentioned. The promise of a second coming. He talks about the promise of his coming again. Now he's, he's already alluded to that, so we want to go back to that at verse 3. And he mentions it again in verse 28. Now the whole thing that has disturbed them, has their hearts all stirred up, was the announcement that he's going away and they don't understand that. But the one thing they should have keyed in on is I'm coming back. Like a little child who, who learns that mom or dad is leaving and they're crying and they're disturbed. I didn't want you to leave. But the promise of I'm coming back is the what they hold on to till they see their mommy and daddy again. So look at verse 3. Verse 3 he says, and I go, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Drop down to verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. I've already explained it. <clears throat> I've already told you I'm going away and I'm coming back. <clears throat> so verse 3, verse 28, he made a promise he's coming again. That's a promise. Now, go back to verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. If you believe in Jehovah God, you believe anything that he says is true, then also believe me and believe that's true. You can put your trust and your confidence that anything he says is true. So that means if he's coming back, he is coming back. Now, when he comes, we can be with him. Let's go back to verse 3. When he comes, we can be with him. Notice at verse 3 that we can be where he is, where he has been, and where he's going to be. How so? Look at verse 3. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. I'm going away, and when I come back, I'm going to take you where I just said I was going. That's what he just said at verse 3. What I'm learning from that is the same principle I learned over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in verse 17. Turn there with me. There was a great misunderstanding about the second coming. And so 1 Thessalonians is written to address that, that misunderstanding and that disturbance. And so as Paul addresses that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as well as the previous chapters, I want you to notice at verse 17 he said, then speaking of the resurrection, that the Lord himself, starting at verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's the second coming. And what takes place at the second coming? Now verse 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air and thus will always be with the Lord. What I'm learning from that is when the Lord comes back, the faithful will always be with the Lord. That was the very thing the disciples were wanting. We want to be with you. We don't want you to leave. We want to be by your side. And the promise of his coming again is saying there is a time when you will always be by my side. That's the point. Now, let's look at verse 18. You're still at 1 Thessalonians 4. If you're still open there, look at verse 18. It's comforting to know that he's coming again and to have a good understanding of what takes place at the second coming. 
If we're all confused, we don't know what that is. And we don't know what's going to take place. We might be disturbed. But if I understand that the Lord is coming back, and understand what's going to happen when He comes back, verse 18 says, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Is your heart disturbed and your heart troubled? Is it all tight because you're just really bothered by some things that have just got you in turmoil? You're stirred up. Something that will help you is to understand the promise of the second coming. That helps a troubled heart. But there was something else beginning at verse 12. And that's the assurance of answered prayer. Jesus is talking to disciples who do, do not fully understand what's about to take place. They don't even have a full grasp of the task that's about to be, be before them. How they're going to accomplish it. Where the help's going to be. And so here's what I learned beginning at verse 12. In verse 12... The apostles are left now with work to do. Let's go back to John 14. If you've left there, let's go back to John 14 in verse 12. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my father. There are several things I want us to see from verse 12. First of all, I want to notice that the disciples are left with a task and a work to do. I'm going away. He's been announcing that from chapter 13 and even before. But I have work to do and you have work to do. Here's something I learned from that. A troubled heart is far better off if it stays busy. A troubled heart is better off if it stays busy. Jesus understood that. When our heart's troubled and we sit and wallow and our self-pity about how bad we have it and how bad we're hurting and how uh, sorry we feel for ourselves, then our deep depth of sorrow gets worse. But a troubled heart is far better off, Jesus understood, if it stays busy. I left you work to do. And you're going to have plenty of work to do. And we're going to see what that work is. Now I want you to notice at verse 12, he talks about his work and their work. And he said, greater works, read with me at verse 12. He that believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. There's work that I have and there's work that you will be doing. And then he said, greater works than these he will do. What on earth is that about? Well, some think that that has reference and it may have reference to the miraculous. That I work miracles and have worked miracles, but greater works than I have done will you do. And that very well may have reference to that. But it's kind of hard for me to imagine that the apostles actually did greater miracles than Christ. He raised the dead, didn't he? He caused the blind to see. I can't think of a miracle the apostles performed that was any greater than what Jesus did. Maybe that's what he's talking about. I'm not sure that that's what he's talking about. It seems that he's talking about greater works in the sense of reaching thousands with the gospel. Jesus' work was focused in Palestine. And he preached to a smaller group of people wherein they're going to larger groups and they're going to be preaching in just a few days to thousands in Acts chapter 2, then into Judea and then in Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. In that sense, there are greater works. There are literally hundreds and thousands, 3,000 in one day. Jesus never preached to that kind of crowd, nor converted that many. It is not saying that it is more important of their work than what Jesus did, but it's greater in volume, greater in quantity, greater in mass. 
I've left you work to do. And greater works than I have done, he said, you're going to be doing. Now, there's something about his going away that's necessary about that. Let's go back now to verse 12. He said, in greater works, uh, the works that I do, he shall also do. And greater works than these, he will do because I go to my Father. The works that the apostles are going to be doing that are greater has a connection with his going away. What's the connection? It's necessary he go to the Father so those works could be accomplished. If he doesn't ascend to the Father, the, the blood is not offered before the throne. If he doesn't ascend to the Father, there is no high priest. If he doesn't ascend to the Father, he's not a king. So it's necessary that he ascend to the Father and go away that the work might be accomplished so they can do their task and they can do their job. If I don't want to go away, then the task you have of spreading the gospel is going to be ineffective because there's not going to be any sacrifice that's been made. The blood could be shed, but it won't be offered before the throne. There's a connection between my going away and accomplishing the mission. The apostles were left with work to do. Now, let's get back to the prayer. To help them with that work, he assured them of answered prayer. No, I'm not going to be here with you. I'm going away. But at any time, you could ask, and, and, and I'll answer your, uh, and your prayers will be answered. Look at verse, verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. The Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You just ask and you'll receive. Look at John 15 and in verse 7. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Again, if this is talking about the miraculous in verse 12, then this probably is talking about you'll ask to, to work the miracles and you'll be able to perform that. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about their spread of the gospel. And as they're going to go forth and spread the gospel, and as they preach, you're going to ask and your prayers are going to be answered. Now, the prayer is both open and it is limited. I want you to notice in verse 12, 13, and 14, and in chapter 15 and in verse 7, the prayer that he gives for the disciples to offer is both open and it's limited. How so? It's open in the sense that they were told they could ask for anything. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. At whatever you ask in my name. Verse 14, if you ask anything. Chapter 15, verse 7. You ask whatever you desire. Three different ways of wording the same thing. It's open in the sense you can ask for anything. But it's limited in the sense that it is to be in the name of Christ. Look at verse 13 and verse 14. Verse 13 says, and whatever you ask in my name, and if you ask anything in my name. What does it mean to do it in his name? It means by his authority, in harmony with his will. That's not a phrase we utter at the end of a prayer that makes it in his name. We baptize in the name of Christ. That's not a phrase that we utter. It's what we do. In fact, everything we do is in the name of Christ, or is to be Colossians 3.14. It's not a phrase we utter. It's something we do. And what he's saying is you're praying in harmony with his will. You don't, you can't, while it's open and since you can pray for anything, make sure it's in harmony with the will of God. In other words, here is some unscriptural marriage. I can't pray that God would sanction that. Here is somebody who refuses to be baptized and I pray God would save them. Or here is somebody who is in sin and I pray God just overlook his sin. That's not in harmony with the will of God. Here's somebody who refuses to repent and I pray God forgive them anyway. That's not in harmony with his will. So I can ask anything that's in harmony with the will of God. So it's open and at the same time it's limited. Here's what I'm learning from that. 
the prayers being answered in the assurance that you ask and I'll answer that. You ask anything that's in harmony with my will and I will respond to that. That helps a troubled heart. They're not sure how they're going to handle this task. But you just pray and I'll answer. You just pray and there will be a response. And that helps a troubled heart. But there's something else. What helps so that your heart's not troubled? The comfort of a complete faith. The hope of a prepared place. The promise of a second coming. The assurance of answered prayer. But also the meaning of disciples' love. I'm not sure these disciples understood what love was. There are two themes found in verse 15, 21, 24, and 28. That Jesus focuses on and says, if you love me, these two things are going to take place. Let's see what they are. Here's the first. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Look at verse 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Look at verse 24. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. If he loves me, he keeps my commandments. Look at verse 24. He comes from the other direction. He who does not love me does not keep my words. So the one that loves me obeys me. The one who doesn't obey doesn't love me. And we'll come to verse 28 in a moment. Now what did I just learn from that? Well, perhaps it was because. Listen to this carefully. Perhaps it was because of love that they may have been troubled. It may be because of love that you are troubled. In what sense? Well, there may be something going on with somebody that you love. And it is because of that love you have for them that you are troubled and disturbed. That was the case with the disciples. They love Jesus. And he's going away. He said he's going away. We don't want him to go away. And they're disturbed by that. And it may be because you love someone that you are disturbed because they've left the Lord. Or you love someone and they have been ugly to you and consequently you're disturbed. You love someone and they're hurting and so you are disturbed in your ter turmoil over that. It may be because of love. But what Jesus is saying here is the tears and despondency are not love's reaction to his leaving, but it's obedience. Go back now to verse 15. Look at verse, uh, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. He is not saying, oh, by the way, I want to talk about love. I want to, I want to change subjects on you. He's still talking about let not your heart be troubled. That if you really love me, these tears you're shedding and, and this, this weeping that you have and this despondency that you have, that's not the reaction to love. Let me tell you what love does. If you truly love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's what he's saying. Secondly, look at verse 18. Or verse 28. That should say verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'm coming back. And if you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. Jesus is saying, let me understand, let me, let me explain to you what love does. That love means you'll rejoice. Now, they're troubled. But they're troubled because of their own feelings and their concern with themselves, as often we are. A child leaves home, they get married and they leave home, and if you're like me, you shed tears when that takes place. 
You're not crying for them, you're crying for yourself. That's who you're crying for. You feel sorry for yourself. What am I going to do? I'm, I'm going to be missing them. And that's what the disciples are doing. They're concerned about themselves and their feelings. And Jesus is saying in verse 28 that if you loved and you cared for me, you would rejoice. How so? If they understood that he was returning to the Father, they would rejoice. Look at verse 28 again. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. I came from the Father. I'm getting to go back to the Father. If you truly love me, you'd rejoice. If they understood what he would accomplish in his leaving, they would be excited. If I don't go away, there is no salvation. If I don't, if I don't go away, the mission is failed. If you understood what my mission was and where I was going and, and the joy that I'd have of returning to heaven to be with my father, you would be rejoicing with me. Perhaps someone comes from a foreign country and they live here for a year or two and they get homesick and they get ready to go back home and you're shedding your tears and you're crying. I want you to stay, I want you to stay. But if you just understood they're going back home, you'd rejoice. Understanding love and what love is and what it means and what it does helps a troubled heart. Here's the last. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. And here's something that'll help. And that's the gift of God's peace. Look at verse 27. He says to this troubled band of disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And isn't it interesting that he next, his next phrase is, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. What is this peace he's talking about? What is that peace? Well, Jesus calls this my peace. This is peace that he establishes. It is not peace that he has received somehow. And I'm going to give it to you now. It is not some subjective feeling he's passing on. It's peace that he has established. This peace is the condition when nothing disturbs our relation with God. Not to be confused with some kind of subjective feeling of peace. You may have a, this feeling of this, I just, feel, I just feel right. I just feel like everything's right. That's a subjective because someone living in a terrible sin could have that same warm feeling too. This is an objective thing. And it is the idea of the condition that we are in when we know nothing disturbs our relationship to God. In spite of all the chaos around us, turmoil within the family, turmoil within the church, chaos in society, I have this peace that Jesus says is my peace that I give to you. It's a knowledge of divine approval. This is a peace that's not dependent upon worldly circumstances. In fact, he said at verse 27, not as the world gives. This is not dependent upon worldly circumstance. Chaos may be all around. And the question is, how does that help? He said, let not your heart be troubled. And then he gets down to this point and he says, 
my peace I give to you. And then he adds, saying, this is going to help, basically. Let not your heart be troubled. How does it help? Well, this peace gives you courage and boldness to face the challenge at hand, whatever that challenge may be. Their challenge is going on without the Lord. Their challenge is they're facing to face chaos in a world as they preach the gospel. This knowledge that you're in a right relationship with God, despite everything else, will give courage and boldness in the face of the challenge at hand. Since it differs in essence and in quality from the worldly peace, it soothes a troubled heart. Worldly peace does not do that. Jesus said so at verse 27. Look at Psalms, uh, not Psalms, but Philippians, if you will. One last passage, and we'll be done. Philippians chapter 4. The peace of God calms an anxious heart that's uptight and disturbed and worried, bothered. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything but prayer and supplication let your request be made known unto God. Has to do with anxieties and cares and worries. But notice at verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. Your hearts and your minds will be guarded through Christ. How? By the peace of God. This peace, this, this inner peace that comes because you know your relationship with God is right. And nothing disturbs that. That peace of God gives help to a troubled heart. So Jesus said to his disciples who were all tight about things. And they're in turmoil and they're troubled. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Well, Jesus, what's going to help? The comfort of a complete faith, the hope of a prepared place, the promise of a second coming, the assurance of an answered prayer, the meaning of the disciples' love and the gift of God's grace. And that helps with a troubled heart. May we use those to help in times of our own trouble. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith? And be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, come while we gather, stand, and sing. <clears throat>